we've created a bunch of content that's almost meaningless simply to log a digital interaction and then create some reaction to it. So I think companies that really invest in understanding who their customer is and being valuable to them in some way are the brands that are going to win. And that's that's really going to be the responsibility of the marketing team. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders. Welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, I am welcoming Amanda Elam to the show. Amanda, I would love if you would give a little intro of yourself and your work for the audience that doesn't know you yet. Sure. My name is Amanda, as Ledge said, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer for Bloomreach. Bloomreach is a tech company in the e-commerce space that helps brands and retailers and other companies who sell things online connect with their audience in a highly personal way. That's fantastic. So talk to me about, you know, sort of this e-commerce technology space. It is both crowded and interesting. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of entrance in the space. What do you do in that marketing seat to, you know, stand out and help promote a different type of platform there? Sure. So uh, e-commerce obviously is is the backbone of many organizations that we saw through COVID and the pandemic that a lot of brands are uh, really trying to figure out how to create an, uh, an online revenue stream, especially the more traditional, if you think about the big box retailers and those guys who really didn't have uh, an offline presence because short stores and shopping was, was shut down. So we saw a surgence of people trying to get into e-commerce and understand really how to run it. But the, but the flip side of that is that it's given e-commerce has really leveled the playing field for smaller organizations to enter um, from just a brand perspective and start to get their products out. You see the Instagram ad that we all get for new brands that we've never heard of to sell us these cool tennis shoes or sunglasses. And the reality is in order to run a business online, you do need a very sophisticated tech stack. And for smaller companies like these D2C brands that we see popping up everywhere, they have small teams. And so in order to scale and compete with the big guys and really create an e-commerce presence, they, they've they got to have the, the latest and greatest of super easy to use, super easy to implement and integrate tech that then allows them to execute across multiple channels. We sit on the side where it's really the site management. So marketing automation that drive people to your site content where you inspire them when they get on your site and then also search which helps them find products once once they land on your site but there's a whole host of other things like the traditional e-commerce backends like a shopify and a or magento or big commerce those guys that that you really start with almost as like what in the b2b would start with a crm provider so it's in the same way that we look at the marketing technology landscape and it's just exploding and as as marketing people feels like there's a new tech to plug in every day e-commerce professionals are experiencing something very similar. Yeah, the massive MarTech 
stack seems to be evolving and, you know, to sort of spreading into all manners of business. I mean, how do you advise people, merchants, businesses, even to start making sense of that? I mean, I know in, in, you know, sort of enterprise B2B, we see these, the, the MarTech graphic that has like 6,000 yeah. logos on it, you know, and, and, and then obviously yeah. e-commerce fits in there. And, you know, it's sort of just like, it's completely ridiculous, overwhelming when you need to evaluate different providers and then think about integrations. And, and that's coming from a tech guy. I mean, this is what I yeah. do for a living. So, <laughs> I mean, and, and that speaks to, you know, like a difficult marketing message and then, you know, a, a customer experience and, you know, all types of stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, the, the good thing is that SaaS has uh, given us this plethora of options and technology. So cloud makes it super easy to identify and plug in tools, but uh, the tools are only as good as the data that, that powers them. And so uh, ultimately starting where, where I, when I talk to uh, either on the B2C or B2B side to start with the data and we're, we all have so much data so it's what is your data strategy? What data do you want to capture? How do you want to use it? How do you want to activate it? What systems and where and how? What's that source of truth going to be? So starting with really that that data strategy component and then plugging in, really focusing and optimizing on tools that are easy, that don't, don't have a big implementation timeline, that don't have a big lift on training for your team. Because with a two to three year tenure in the marketing organization to continually be going through an evolution of training your team on how to use the tools, you're losing all of the go-to-market benefit of putting that tool in place that, that, that you selected it for in the first place. So that's typically where I start. Right. Yeah. So you, you speak with a lot of data authority. So I want, you know, where does that come from? <laughs> what's, what's the background uh, behind that? You, you talk like an implementer almost. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a marketer. So uh, we marketers these days, we, we live and breathe data. I think um, most of my, team could run a Salesforce report better than a Salesforce admin some days, I think. Um, the the fields that we're using, the segments that we're creating, the, the customer groups that we need to understand, building out our you know market analysis, we've got to have a really good handle on the data in order to do our jobs well. Um, and so my background, I actually did uh, start in very long, long time ago, uh, a little over 20 years ago, in nonprofit direct mail solicitations, where we would we would get results back from control packets and try to understand what modifications we could make on, on variants in order to get more, get more donations. So very early beginnings of understanding data. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hear CMOs now sort of battling the idea of like, well, it's too much data and we track too many things and we've lost sort of the, soul of branding and it's all about the relationship and we shouldn't derive it just down into, you know, marketing qualified leads. And I don't know, like, where do you, where do you come down on all of that? It seems like warring factions in marketing are developing. Yeah. It, and, and, and they're both right. Um, I, I would say I, I uh, started doing marketing before before WordPress and CMS and track and then UTMs were, you know, like a really, really standard way of operating. And so I, I got to kind of grow up in the, into the evolution of what now is digital marketing and content marketing and inbound marketing and really see how those things evolved. And I think the reality is that 
uh, everybody completely aware of the fact that forms are have have now become a way to track and measure and and create an action on the side of the business. And the reality is that as marketers, we weren't super responsible with the data that we were collecting, and we weren't thinking about the customer experience. We were thinking about the collection of data and the automation that we could trigger as a result of it. And I know because it's exactly what I did. I didn't think about the automation response behind a form submit for a newsletter, uh, maybe being annoying to have a CEA or uh, an SDR, excuse me, call you immediately after that engagement. And so I think as a community, we all got, we had a lot of technical marketers enter the space who all really know and understand how to use technology and build automations and workflows and create those reports and that data, but did not think about the end prospect or the end customer or a person on the other side of it and build experiences that were enjoyable for them. So I do think uh, we see consumers and prospects flocking to brands who create really interesting experiences. I do think this is quite a bit different, though, from what used to be branding. We saw like, you know, Mad Men ages and even kind of like early, early marketing, you know, 30 years ago marketing, it was about the brand, it was about quippy headlines, and it it was positioning, it was more about that out-of-home media, and we moved into the digital marketing age. I don't think we're going to go back to that focus on branding. I do think it's a lot more about community. And it's really like, what is the value that as an organization, we're going to provide to the community around us? How are, as a result of interacting with us as a company, how is someone going to be better at their job or better at, uh, better able to connect with other people and, and find a community of either in this case, fellow marketers or fellow e-commerce professionals that they can learn from and contribute to. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that community thing comes up a lot now, you know, that, that, that in some ways that could also be co-opted into, you know, sort of aggressive uh, tactics to convert, you know, customers. But there, there is such, a, I imagine, particularly in D2C, there's this such this idea now of what used to be branding is now about brand affinity and association. Uh, and you hear it all the time, you know, millennials and uh, sort of Gen Y and all these things, Gen Z, you know, they they need to essentially feel a connection with the cause and the mission and vision of a brand. And, and that feels like incredibly difficult to then put into place in a tech stack, which is, is so tactical and, and so narrow in scope. How do you even begin to bridge that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, that the company does have to stand for something, and we're working through this now our, ourselves. With um, what, what do we, as an organization and a team, actually stand for and believe in? Like, why do we why do we do this job? Why why do I run marketing for a SaaS company? Is that really the legacy that I want to <laughs> I want to leave behind when you know I'm hopefully a long, long time from now is saying my goodbyes to everyone? Um, and, and I do believe that technology has a positive impact on the world. And I do believe commerce has a positive impact on the world. If you look at the accessibility of materials and medicine and trade and how much commerce, commerce and their in turn e-commerce and technology have really made, uh, uh, leveled the playing field and made it possible for disadvantaged groups and people to have access to things that, that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise, there is a lot of positive benefit in what we do. But I do think there's a responsibility for us as brands, even in tech, to, to not accept that we're a technology. And so we're kind of disconnected from the humanness of what's happening around us. 
because that's just not true. And so as um, I think the companies that can identify their, their purpose beyond just the product that they sell are going to be the ones that at the end of the day win. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm guessing you get to put on that evangelist type of hat. You've, you've talked about several things there that fit into to that lens. Is that, is that a typical spot to imagine the, the CMO and, you know, that you get to evangelize and, and talk about the bigger issues in addition to, you know, kind of managing the whole marketing enterprise? I don't know. I don't know if I know what a, a CMO is supposed to do. This is my, this is, this is, a, I was acquired by, uh, into, I became the CMO at Bloomreach through an acquisition. I was the CMO at a company called Exponia and we were acquired. And then uh, Raj, our CEO, uh, trusted me enough to put me into the role here. So I'm, I'm kind of learning as I'm, as I'm going. Um, but I do think that, that the C-suite in particular regardless of which lane you're in, has an expectation to set the pace and the tone for the company. And so whether I'm jumping into product vision and strategy or um, whether I'm jumping into customer issues or talking about like, what, is, what do we owe the world from a, from a CSR perspective? I, I think at, at least the way that I view it is as a mem- member of the executive team that um, I have a huge responsibility to our company to deliver in a lot of positive ways. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that gets to like a question I, I think of a lot because I interview a lot of CMOs. I, I come from the sales side of the house. So, you know, it's, it's a seat that I've never sat in, but we depend upon a lot, to, you know, to, to make things happen. And, and that there seems to have been like, it's just sort of what is a, a CMO now? I mean, it's just evolved in such remarkable ways and almost to my mind is taken over what used to be a CIO and, and there's this sort of like, you see companies doing this chief commercial officer type of stuff now. And I mean, and then you got chief revenue officer and sometimes marketing is part of that. And I mean, it's just like, it's become a really cloudy kind of, of situation there, you know, where clearly leadership is, is necessary, but the, the field just grows and grows. Yeah, I, I think that's as much to do with how tech marketing has become as anything else. Like you, to to be in marketing today, especially in leadership, you have to be able to understand the products, especially in SaaS. You have to be able to understand the products and at least the the technical landscape fairly well. You have to also be able to understand the market and how to do customer interviews. I have a bit of a product marketing background, and so you have to be able to understand how to do positioning and then you've got to have a technical understanding of like lead management and workflow and how does that move into opportunities on the sales side? And, um, and then, and then there is the the vision and the strategy and where are we going and positioning from a, against competitors, but more, more ideally more focused on how do we create a position for ourselves in the market that's unique and that's compelling to, to the market that we're trying to take. So I, I think that there's just so many facets to the, to the role that who they have report to them and what their title is, is probably much more dependent on the individual and the organization than the role itself. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you talked a little bit off mic about, yay, the return of travel and yes. being busy and, you know, and it, it speaks to, we have, we have a lot of people in the audience who are leaders of companies that have to balance a million things. And and I wonder, you know, how does, how does that work from a, you know, a personal basis for for you you know what are the tips to 
manage time and manage balance and, you know, all the things that we hope to do from a, a CSR perspective, you know, we, we want to put that on our career page, but then we have to demonstrate it also. That is true. So I would be lying if I told you I was good at that. <laughs> I, I am not. Yeah, that is something I struggle with. Our team, one of the pieces of feedback that we get is our team just feels like they're they're kind of going all the time, and they'll they'll we'll talk about me from a, from an example perspective that I'm always online and seem to always be responding to things. So I definitely struggle with finding that balance and. In a, in a remote world where we're digitally connected and I have Slack on my phone and email, we're in, we're in several countries and so therefore quite flexible time zones. And I feel a, a level of responsibility to not be a roadblock for people. It is tough. I do think that I should be more available and more responsive if I'm doing the job that I'm, that I'm doing, but maybe that is, maybe that's a terrible answer and I'm setting a really bad example. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I get it. You know, I, I feel the same way and, you know, often with worldwide workforce and, you know, it's just, and, and also, you know, I love my work, but I also need to demonstrate that, uh, how do I communicate the message that it's cool for everybody else to not be online? Like I expect your green dot to go away and not, to get answers, but I'm not going to demonstrate that well. And that's that's what I do. And, you know, essentially there's a difference and it doesn't set the expectation. So I guess it's, you know, it really becomes like a communication issue or, or opportunity to, to say, you know, we also know that you didn't aspire currently to have my job. Thus, you know, you don't have to do those things. But yeah, I also, I also struggle with, with that. So, you know, um, none of yeah, us are probably, maybe particularly good at it. <laughs> maybe not. It's probably a bit more too about when people are on vacation, being intentional about not picking them. And, not, and if you say, Hey, you really need to take time off checking in and asking people when the last time was that they took vacation and another area that I probably could be a lot better in. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. Let me ask you about the the path to getting here. I would like to find out, you know, lessons learned or, you know, big hairy mistakes made that you, you know, actually turned into a forward momentum moment. I think everybody has those pivotal, wow, I, I really screwed that up, but it, it ended up well. You know, I love those. Stories. <laughs> um, I, th- I don't, I don't know that I had a big mistake that, that turned into a super big positive, but I definitely have an un, an, a non-characteristic, I guess, path to CMO. I did not finish my college degree and I had children fairly, fairly young. So I'm now a mother to I mean, 18 and 17 year old kids who are, who are two of them are out of the house and the last one's on his way out. So there was a lot of just more personal things that, that happened that, that conflicted with my career. Um, I would say one of the biggest lessons I learned was that uh, companies can't be loyal to you. So you need to um, really focus on yourself and on your career. And if you're getting what you need to develop out of uh, the, the job and the role that you're in, and, and I mean that from a development perspective. So if you have somebody who's mentoring you, if that your work is challenging, if you enjoy what you do, then it's a great organization to stay at. But if you're at a place where you're like, hey, I'm not learning, I'm not growing, but you know, I barbecue with my boss on Sundays, like that relationship should exist outside of work. But that that's not something that should be tied to the company that you're at or the company you're at or the job that you're in. So to decouple that that personal association to the job from your development and your career. It sounds like you have a lot of intentionality about 
career development and advancement? And like, did you plan a path or you one that would have, you know, written down your goals early on and, and checked them off? Or was it more, you know, right place at the right time with the right attitude? Uh, definitely right place, right time. Most of the time, right attitude. <laughs> definitely, definitely some moments where I had more, more of not the right attitude, but I, um, worked really hard to develop relationships with people that I worked with and particularly with people that I reported to, to understand what motivated and uh, what, what they needed out of me and the role that I was in. And then also learning from them. How did they get to their job and how did they respond and act in situations? What mattered to them when they went into meetings? What questions did they ask? So being pretty vigilant about uh, w- what the people I reported to prioritized and then really leveraging those relationships when they would move on to other companies or when they would begin looking for roles to stay connected and work within that network to, to grow my career opportunities. And you talked about mentorship. Have you been on both sides of that, of benefiting and providing? I, I do, yes. I have, I've had a couple of really, really great mentors throughout the years that have been intentional about spending time and giving very, very direct feedback about situations that I'm in right now. My RCEO, Raj Deidata, he's, he's serving in a function of a boss and mentorship role giving me feedback on how to have a better executive presence and show up into a show up at a, at a meeting and present in a way that the, that the C-suite would absorb information and respond to it in, in more effectively. Because again, prior to this, I'd, I'd been in a VP role and it's just a different set of expectations. So looking for those opportunities around you. And then I am lucky to have half of our executive team are females. So a lot of opportunity there for them to mentor about what it means to be a female in tech and in leadership. But then, yes, also, absolutely, I have uh, several people who either directly report to me or are, are in the marketing sphere around me, either in the company or outside of it, that I connect with on a regular basis and just talk about life and then also give feedback on, on specific situations. And what is it to be a female in leadership in tech? Uh, because, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not one that, you know, makes specific episodes of, about that. But hey, since you brought it up, you know, I'll, I'll ask because I think that's important. So. Yeah, I think it has. It's definitely we're, we're definitely evolving into space. But um, I do. I think that there is an element of the the SaaS and the technology world that's very male male dominated and especially when you start moving up into management positions and there is definitely uh, for the most part women just handle situations differently we can we can tend to be softer more empathetic a little bit more emotional I mean there's tons of books about this out there and how a balanced leadership team actually leads to better outcomes because you have a, a, a more balanced approach but uh, when when you're a voice of one or or a voice of two in a in a larger seat it becomes much more difficult to feel like there's a balanced offering of feedback. I think it also makes it a lot more difficult for women in the company who are aspiring to become leaders to find mentors and to find opportunities for someone who looks like or sounds like or feels like them or is going through similar situations to really lean on them and get some of that advice and feedback. And then I think there are just some like soft challenges. I don't, I don't have a better word for it, but there are things like just how to handle yourself in a situation where you feel uncomfortable. So where do you go inside the organization? What leader are you going to be able to get, you know, feedback and advice from where it's not a, you're not trying to make an HR complaint. It's not a big deal. You're trying to learn how to stick up for yourself. Where is the example that, that you're look that you, that you reach out to, to, to get some advice. So it's more, 
it's it's I guess harder to define, but you know it when you see it. Yeah, <laughs> you know it when you see. It. Yeah, you know it when you see it. Exactly. Exactly. Right, and and I think there's so much very good research and data about diversity of, of voice and opinion, and it, you know it. It's interesting how it gets derived down into, you know, a, a Forbes article once in a while and you kind of go, I, but that just doesn't capture it. But I guess I guess it's glad it's good that somebody's talking in that that way. But, you know, I I have been fortunate to develop, you know, sort of diverse teams. And, and it's so it's so welcome to just have like, wow, I never even remotely had an experience like what you just described. And it's cool to learn from other people and to just have different backgrounds and of, of all sorts, you know, and I think like you might even include, you know, well, I, I had a non-traditional college experience. I was a mother, you know, I did different things there. I think that we could be more thoughtful about what constitutes diversity. I have a, a distance marriage. My wife lives 650 miles away and we see each other every other weekend. And, you know, maybe there are things I can bring to the table and conversations like uniqueness is, is diversity. And I I think that's the missed opportunity that that folks get a a little hung up in when it, when it gets real preachy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that if we, if we give a little bit of space to get to know people for who they are and what drives them and what motivates them, and we can understand with, more context where their fears and opportunities like the identification of opportunities come from that, that we would have a much stronger outcomes as a result of it. But that's hard. It's hard to take time when you're on nine hours of zoom calls. (laughs) Yes. Nine hours of zoom calls. Yeah. So, I mean, again, how do you carve out the time there that, you know, you have to focus on a lot of different things, like I guess every executive. And I think we're all having our video soul down a little bit. <laughs> like when I, I know that's exhausting and, and being, you know, on the sales side of things, you know, look, you're going to do calls, right? I mean, you know, that's what we do. We talk to prospects, but man, when I see that calendar lining up eight in a row and I just know that I'm going to stand here all day and <laughs> click and record and click and record. I don't, I don't know what we've all created here on the same point you got to connect with people or you got to be remote, you know? So I, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting how you mentioned that, it, you know, folks are moving back to, you know, in person in some ways, and yet you have a fully remote team. How do you not spend all day on it? You know, but yeah. Slack and Zoom is it, right? <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Slack and Zoom, Slack and Zoom are huge, huge parts of my, of my everyday. Uh, but we are also being very intentional about getting out and meeting our teams, which just goes back to, what I, what I was saying prior to us recording is how much I'm traveling. And a lot of that is to meet the team in person and to spend time and to do brainstorming. Cause there certainly are types of meetings that you just almost can't do in zoom. Like you can't get a whiteboard out and start ideating and just chewing through big topics and, and really collaborating. You can't, I mean, I guess you could grab a glass of wine because I certainly did during COVID with a group of people on on Zoom, but it's much more fun to have a charcuterie with a glass of wine in person. So just those moments of, of human connection. And it, I mean, it, it is something that you just have to be intentional about doing and remember that it's not just about getting the work accomplished because you can do it on Zoom. It's about continuing to build those connections individually with, with humans. Yeah. I think the funniest thing for me is when I finally meet 
people in person. The only thing that I don't feel I know is how tall they are. Right. We're all these like disembodied avatars now. (laughs) That is the most common thing I hear is everyone's like, oh my gosh, you're so much taller, so much shorter. (laughs) Those things. Yeah. Right. Right. And and then we all have to get pants that fit again. So, you know, (laughs) yep. Yeah. So I, you know, I told you at the beginning, I love to have everybody put on your futurist hat, I call it, you know, and just sort of what must be on the radar, you know, and we have a B2B audience. So we, we sort of think about that from a, a business perspective. But if I get and sit, you know, I spend time on, you know, what I should be thinking about and reading about or, you know, being prepared for what's on what's on your radar for the next couple of years just to, from a, a macro standpoint. Yeah, it really is about what, what we were talking about earlier is this convergence of, of let's call it brand and digital and that I think people are just tired of all the, the taking that companies have done. So the, it's been a, we've created a bunch of content that's almost meaningless simply to, to log a digital interaction and then create some, some reaction to it. So I think brands, uh, companies that really invest in understanding who their customer is and being valuable to them in some way are the brands that are going to win. And that's, that's really going to be the responsibility of the marketing team inside of companies to drive that, to change that, to tell the sales leader that their leads are going to fall off a cliff, to tell the CEO that the predictability of their early stage pipeline is going to become more, more nascent to work with the sales team about storytelling and providing value to work with the customer success teams about becoming more of the content creators and more of the face of the brand. I think that evolution for companies, as much as I want to not, you know, believe that that's the direction, because again, I'm a digital marketer, performance marketer and by, by trade for the last two decades, it's a super uncomfortable space to move into, but we, we have to, if we, if we are going to be responsible leaders in, in marketing, we've got to move our organizations toward this, this new way of, of working. I love that. You, you really need to go speak at conferences and stuff. That was, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. This has been, this has been awesome. You have covered so much ground that uh, I have run out of, of questions. So I, I really appreciate you coming on with the, with the insights. I know this is a lot of really valuable stuff. If anybody in the audience wants to get uh, connected with you, how would they do that? Connect with me on LinkedIn. I pretty much accept everybody that isn't disrespectful or spamming me. So connect with me on, on LinkedIn and love to, love to chat. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming out. Thanks, Ledge. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.